Last time we chatted with commercial tenant representative Paul Sussman about the changing office culture of Seattle. So today we're going to focus on what lies beneath all those office buildings. We have as our guest archaeologist and museum specialist Paula Johnson of Willamette Cultural Resources Associates Limited. Paula has 27 years of experience in archaeology, and during this entire period, she's focused her work here in the Puget Sound region. And in fact, she's worked on many of the region's largest infrastructural projects, projects I'm sure you're aware of, like the light rail system, major stormwater projects, wastewater treatment, flood control, and so forth. And her projects have included the recently opened Highway 99 tunnel and seawall along Seattle's resurgent waterfront. She's also done archaeological monitoring during the restoration of the King Street Station, now on the Historic Register, National Register of Historic Places, in the Pioneer Square neighborhood, and also worked on the Brightwater Reclaimed Water Pipeline near Redmond, Washington. Paula's never found gold, but she has dusted off ancient Egyptian artifacts and unpacked Chinese artifacts from the first imperial Chinese dynasty. And she safely packed a taxidermied bison that was probably treated with arsenic. Today, we will explore how and why creating brand new urban infrastructure like the new light rail stations require the makers of those systems to study the people who occupied these places historically, as well as to take steps to preserve any artifacts discovered along the way. We'll look at some of the specific challenges that archaeologists face in the Pacific Northwest due to our unique climate, all the rain, the marshy soils, the histories of volcanoes and whatnot. And then finally, we'll learn about how careful and diligent study of the many layers um, that lie beneath our places may transform our awareness of them today. And stick around. At the end of the show, you'll learn about a fresh and new opportunity to observe archaeologists in action just right here in the University District. Hey, Paula. Hi, how are you? Welcome, and thank you for being here. I'm great. Thanks. Just curious about uh, what got you started in archaeology. I was in college and changing majors a few times and um, ended up taking an anthropology class and really clicked with it. So people were skeptical in my family that I could make a living as an anthropology major, but it just so happened that one of the oldest sites in Seattle was found a couple weeks before I graduated. So What was that site? The West Point site uh, in Magnolia. Okay. What is the West Point site? Uh, it is a 4,200-year-old archaeological site. Um, it's underneath the sewage treatment plant. Wow. Okay. And uh, it was an amazing discovery, uh, really changed what we understood about the prehistory of of the Puget Sound. Awesome. Well, I also want to acknowledge that this is native land, indigenous land historically, and yes. I'm just wondering how you engage with tribes. In uh, your... I work with tribes very often. Um, they are interested in all aspects of what these projects bring um, they want to make sure that any cultural resources that, that are found, cultural resources kind of encompasses all the archaeology and plants and um, anything that would, would be of cultural importance. They will be interested because of those things, but also because they care about the outcome of the project. For example, at West Point, cleaner water. That's important to them, too, right. because of their ongoing interest in in this area. So um, it's not um, always difficult to come to an agreement with the tribes as you as you might yeah. assume yeah. because often they are supportive of what the objective of the project is. Right. Okay. Well, good. So tell me about the what, the artifacts and resources that you discovered in that very first project of your career. Um, sure. So it's a shell midden site. Um, those are often found on the islands and coast coastline of, of the Puget Sound. 
Um, and it's basically a, a crumble of shell that that sort of spreads across the landscape. Sometimes uh, the shell can be used kind of as um, structural to create like rings of windbreaks and things like that. Um, but uh, it's basically ma- this at West Point is a massive um, shellfish processing site. Uh, for a while, it was a year-round occupation, and then through time, it became just more of a spring and summer occupation. And this is over thousands of years ago. Yes, this is a forty-two hundred-year-old oh, site. Amazing. Huh. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, through all the study at the site, we saw was cultural change over time. Wow. Um, and so, so all these shells, you'd think that they would be something that would get tossed in the wind or not preserved because they're not locked down or you know they're not within concrete or some structure, right? They're naturally spread. Is that right? Well, I mean, the massive quantities that we're talking about, they they become the ground surface. Okay. Um, and so, I mean, we're talking about, you know, three feet thick wow. of shell. Oh. Um, and there was, you know, over 24 um, shell species represented. So there were harvesting shellfish. Um, as time went on, they were drying the shellfish, and that became then a trade item mm. and a, a well-sought-after trade item. Um, strings of clams would have a monetary value and be, tra- be traded to especially inland um, groups that didn't have access to saltwater clams. Wow. Yeah. Great. And then who, who are you working for? Who is your customer or client at the time for a project like that? So the... Treatment. The sewage treatment plant is uh, King County uh, runs it. They were expanding it to um, increase the level of treatment, so a secondary treatment could be conducted. That's a a better quality of you know uh, water quality. Um, and but they had to do this work. They had uh, a permit from the Corps of Engineers, mm-hmm. and um, and so that triggered. Re- uh, the requirement that they comply with the the federal law, the National Historic Preservation Act. Got it. So all the so there's uh, it sounds like there's multiple layers of regulatory sort of bodies and governance that dictate archaeology. So can you walk us through kind of what those are? Well, like I mentioned, if there's any kind of federal involvement, federal money or a federal permit, if you're on federal land, then the National Historic Preservation Act will be in in um, applying and. That requires that the the lead federal agency, so in this case it was the Corps of Engineers, consider the potential for their project to impact cultural resources. So that could be archaeology, it could be historic buildings, it could be a historic landscape. Got it. And so um, many projects start off, there is a federal nexus, and there is a you know, an investigation and, and, and we don't find anything and we don't make any recommendations and that's the end of it. And right. I would say that's vast majority of projects. That's as far as it goes. Got it. But when there is a concern that there could be archaeology, um, then a lot of times there will be agreements made about how will the archaeological, if there is an archaeological discovery during construction, then how would it be handled? I see. And then there's also provisions for if, like, if there is no agreement, like what is the process that will be followed? And then, and then, how do tribes fit into that? Tribes process? are considered a consulting party. Anyone that's interested can be a consulting party to that federal process. Got it. So, for example, I've worked on projects that were along railroad lines, and um, 
uh, avocational railroad groups have become involved because of the, they know the history of the railroad so well. So it can be any kind of interest. It could be the neighbor. Got it. And um, I always ask our guests to think of a place and bring a place in the Pacific Northwest that matters to them um, on a personal level. Mm -hmm. What's that place for you? Um, well, I, I love that question. I have two, actually. Okay. So my first one is the King Street Station, which it just feels so grand to go into that building now with all the amazing architecture. Um, and I love that it's been a part of our city for so long. Mm -hmm. um, so it used to be a pretty dingy place, and it's just remarkable what was hidden behind the drop ceiling, you know. It's incredible. So for those of our guests that haven't been to the King Street Station, I absolutely encourage you to get there. I've been in and out of Grand Central Station since I was a child, in and out of the trains. It's always my place of arrival, apart from the airport. Even in the airport, you take the train and you mm -hmm. go to Manhattan. And King Street Station, the proportions and the grandeur of it is an echo of that, of a, of a major. And it probably is an indicator that the railroad was a big, that was a place that you arrived at one point. Definitely. In our history. So, okay. And my second uh, favorite place is the Panama Hotel, which is in the International District at 6th and Main. Okay. Wow. Um, it's just an amazing snapshot of of well, it tells a lot of stories really. Um, the, the building itself is really notable. It's a national historic treasure. There's only one in Washington State, and that's it. There. So, what's the definition of a national historic treasure? Um, it's it's an honorific for sure, but it's just something that is so important in the story that it. it can tell about our heritage. So it's something of very of much greater significance than Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then it was built in 1910 um by Seattle's first uh, Asian American architect. He built it for Japanese people with a Japanese sensibility. Huh. Um it was built in in um in 1910, and um, at that time, people of Asian descent could not own property, so a corporation was formed to to be the first owners. It was most likely a couple of white people with a couple of Japanese immigrants owning it together mm. and kind of masking the, the Asian ownership. But it tells a lot of really important but stories about heritage and cultural continuity and and then it also tells like a really poignant story of of the um, incarceration of the Japanese American people during World War II. So back up one level. So the mm -hmm. um, the prevent uh, what prevented Asian Americans from owning property in 1910? What specific? Uh, 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 there were laws preventing the it. Restrictive covenants. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. I okay. mean, there was laws preventing. You know, uh, by 1910, there was restricted immigration by Asian people mm -hmm. and. So Okay. And then it tells the story of, of the internment? It does because the second owner of the hotel, um, Mr. Hori, uh, who was Japanese-American, um, when the Executive Order 9066 came out from and, and the orders came out for the different cities in the exclusion zone to evacuate, they had only a couple weeks to pack up their whole household to liquidate their assets and to basically get ready. They didn't know where they were going to go. They could take two suitcases. So a lot of people had to pack up their homes. And um, Mr. Hori offered people that they could store things in his basement, the, oh. the hotel, while they were gone. And um, there's 
uh, suitcases and and crates still in the basement that mm. the people that never came back mm. uh, to Seattle after the incarceration. And then, do we know what happened to the hotel during the time that he? I'm assuming he was also interned. In his he family. was. So, what happened to the hotel's ownership or during that period? Um, there were a lot of uh, people that had partners that would uh, or or found white people to agree to run their businesses or to caretake for their farms while they were incarcerated. Got it. Okay. And then today, how do you view this, uh, the Pan Pacific Hotel? The Panama Hotel. The Panama Hotel. The Panama Hotel. Um, well, I just, I just love the, you know, it's still a hotel. Okay. It's, uh, each, each room has, uh, you know, period furnishings. Um, it's, it's just a craftsmanship that you just don't see anymore. Awesome. So good. Well, let's shift topics a little bit. When I think of archaeology, I'm reminded, I mean, what comes to my mind is Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, or um, there was, when I went to college at Brown University, there was the Egyptology department. So I think of really dry places where ancient objects are like preserved forever, mm -hmm. very easily. But here in Seattle, it rains a lot. There have been all kinds of natural cataclysmic events, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, and whatnot. So I'm just wondering how the natural history of our region affects the work of an archaeologist like yes. yourself. Yes. Um, so one thing, well, there's lots of things, actually. So you, you touched on a lot of them, but, um, you know, the the soils here are really acidic. And so um, if you remember that uh, science experiment in high school where you put uh, the hydrochloric acid on the shell and it fizzed, mm -hmm. um, that's what the what the shell midden sites allow, is they, they neutralize the soil so that organic material can be preserved for longer. Hmm. And so that's one reason why um, our archaeologists like to study shell middens here because it preserves the um, faunal material, the bone, the fish bone, the bird bone, the kinds of things that can help us understand what more about diet, more about the seasons that people were using. And so um, you're right, the Seismic activity has really reformed our landscape, and you know we saw that also at West Point. Um, Eleven hundred years ago, there was a massive earthquake followed by a tsunami. Do we know what level earthquake that was on the Richter scale? If we had one back then, I don't know if they've pinpointed that, but uh, massive, like the Nisqually earthquake, bigger. Huh. So what happened was West Point sank ten feet, and yeah. Alki Point across Elliott Bay rose 10 feet. Whoa. And so the only reason why we could study the West Point site, it was now 10 feet below sea level. Wow. The only reason we could study it is because of the massive amount of dewatering equipment that they had while they were building the secondary sewage treatment. Huh. And so, you know, um, that was like a huge discovery that wouldn't have been possible without that project. Hmm. Um, so other things we see, you're right, uh, volcanic eruptions, the, the ash layers. So earthquakes are fascinating to me. So d was there any like evidence of how the people reacted 1,100 years ago to the earthquake? Anything discoverable in the archaeology? Because that's a massive disruption of life to go down, you know, to have the land sink 10 feet. Yeah. Is there anything? Well, we, what we do know is that they came back and they, and they, you know, weren't daunted by the changing landscape. They came back and they made what they could of what, you know, how it remained. But it became increasingly marshy place to live, which is probably why they weren't living there year round. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it just, um, there's not always going to be evidence archaeologically of every experience that people have. Sure. But. So uh, with the volcanic eruptions, uh, 
the the ash layers or tephras, they can be dated, a source to which uh, volcano they came from. And so if we know when then those eruptions happened, we can help date the the layers of earth and we know mm. everything that's below that layer is older than that eruption. Got it. Um, and so there's, you know, uh, several eruptions that are very easily identified when you're looking at at the uh, And do we know which, which volcanoes erupted? For example, Mount Mazama uh-huh. uh, is a really well-known one. Um, and you, you can find that tephra quite liberally across the landscape. How <laughs> so, far away from Mazama? Ma- well, so Mazama is in Oregon, and it, it came all the way up to here. Oh, amazing. So, yeah. Wow. Well, um, the urban areas of Seattle have also been physically changed so much by people. Correct. By the settlers that came in the 19th century. And I'm thinking like the Denny Regrade, that's the most famous one. We've all seen the photographs of the the kind of the process and how much it changed um, the downtown area. And I'm wondering, have, is that like unique or have there been multiple efforts? Basically, I think people, the settlers came here and they wanted to make a mountainous area flat so it could be built upon or traveled more easily. Was the Denny Regrade a unique um, kind of regrade of the area or did that happen in other neighborhoods or other parts of Seattle? Yeah, I think a lot of people consider the Denny regrade as sort of this singular thing and is really a lot of smaller regrades throughout the city. There's the Jackson regrade and the Pine Street regrade. Um, and so, you know, there's a long history of regrading beginning in the early 1900s. Um, and uh, it, it did, it, it was trying to solve some issues with our pretty steep terrain. Um, and, you know, it made transportation really challenging. Who did these? Were these developers, property owners, the government? Who um, who regraded these neighborhoods? I would say the majority was city-oriented. Um, I'm sure there was some areas where developers took it upon themselves to kind of uh, renovate the area around them. And then did, they, did, did all these efforts destroy archaeological evidence? Artifacts. Most likely. Yeah. Were there efforts at the time? Were there any record of any um, ar- archaeology discovered during the regrades? Or was it really not something in the historical record? Or people, did they care about it at all in the 19th century? I think it was not necessarily anything to stop and wonder about yeah. at, at that point. Um, and certainly there were no regulations about it. Mm-hmm. But like we know from the notes and when they when they excavated the ship canal... That near about near the Ballard portion of the Ship Canal, that they found shell midden sites there, um, and there are some photographs that kind of show evidence that se- seems to suggest there was archaeological disturbances. Got it. So you worked on the transit center next to the Paramount Theater on near Capitol Hill, kind of on the eastern edge of downtown. Mm. And it, it's, from our conversation earlier, it sounds like you went down thirty-eight feet below the surface. And so, um, tell me what was discovered. Sure. Just just a slight correction. So when they built the first, uh, the downtown uh, light rail, they they stopped right near the beneath the um, where the Paramount Theater is. Okay. Why did they do that? It was just that was just how far they were going to build, and then they would they you know whenever they build they they plan ahead for when they're going to extend it. So when they knew they were going to extend to the university district, they had to create a stub tunnel, it's called. And so basically what that is is a a tunnel that goes down from the surface deep enough so that they can retrieve the boring machine that was coming down from Capitol Hill. 
And then they had to take it apart and send it back up to bring it back down and bore another swath. Uh-huh. And so it was the retrieval shaft, and it was also where they would connect up the existing track to the new track. I see. And so um, it was called the Pine Street Stub Tunnel. And um, when they had done the work previously, there had been some discoveries. And so we anticipated that there could be more. We didn't know for sure. And, um, yeah, so 38 feet below the surface, there was uh, basically a dump site um, and also part of the early infrastructure for sewage. Um, And at the turn of the century, there was, like, it was becoming kind of desperate citywide, this idea that we needed to be doing more to um, treat the sewage and the stormwater. And, you know, I mean, I can only imagine how mucky Everything must have been, and it's just... So before there was like a grand plan in the 19th century to treat sewage, what, how was it treated? People had outhouses? People had outhouses, it? yeah. yeah. Um, and there were laws that were enforced about how often you had to clean out your, you know, your outhouses and things like that. Um, and so, you know, it was, there was real concern about the sanitation is- issues, basically. And... Um, and so one thing that we found in the subtunnel was the partial remains of what's called a box drain from, that was built in 1899. And it's, it's a well-engineered feature, and it still was all intact. Um, and if it hadn't been covered with 38 feet of fill, it probably would have still been functioning. Huh, wow. um, and so, um, but uh, this was an area where they were doing a lot of... Um, these smaller regrades. And so what would happen with they would build um, kind of retaining walls to elevate the road, but then all the houses and apartment buildings to the side would not be at the street level. So they would have to have stairs down to the entry from the street. And all of this was like more than 30 feet below the current grade? No, not at no. first. Okay. So there were multiple regrades through time. I see. And so it didn't it wasn't all 38 feet at once. Right. It was a couple right. of different layers. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. And um so what was interesting was we did a lot of research on what uh uh, the neighborhood around this area was like through time just to kind of get an idea of like, well, what was going on here? And what we found was there was a lot of working class um, and tenement type of housing, rentals, short-term rentals. And so what we saw in the artifacts that we found were, you know, household items that had been repaired multiple times, things that were well-worn. Like what? Uh, like a, a chair, that a dining room chair that had been repaired, um, shoes that were well-worn and then had showed signs of repair. We also found things that were like um, – it, it's interesting because uh, you don't often find things that really show you that there's families. And that's what we see a little bit more and more is like – so here we found toys. We found a ceramic cup with a, um, with a child's uh, – design on it. Um, we found uh, children's shoes, mm. part of a high chair, um, and a little wagon. Um, so these were all things that really strongly showed that there were children present in the neighborhood. And so that this was probably, you know, different than the the types of working class neighborhoods where it was just like men working in the sawmills or men working, you know, in the meat plant. Mm-hmm. This, this was family area. Huh. Does it feel like voyeuristic in a way to be, I mean, I guess you're always looking at human beings who are no longer there and kind of what what they left behind. Right. Is it uncomfortable at all? To, or 
What is the sensation of discovering, you know, these communities that they're no longer alive? I think it's kind of exciting. It's just, it's interesting and trying, you know, you're never going to have like all the puzzle pieces. Mm -hmm. So what what can you say that will help interpret and, and give, you know, a voice to the story that these people probably aren't going to be in the history books the way, you know, uh, some of the founding fathers would be the Denny party or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet they've helped create what we see today. So you mentioned the King Street Station a little bit earlier as mm-hmm. one of your favorite places in the mm-hmm. area. And you worked on the King Street Station. Um, and it, apparently it was a pork processing company. Or t- t- tell, tell us about what, you, what was discovered sure. during the process of renovating. Yeah, during the renovation process, they installed all these geothermal uh, wells as a way to um, provide clean energy to the new building. And um, during that process of digging those wells, we identified some. Can you tell me how deep are how deep is a geothermal well? Hundreds of feet. Okay. Hundreds of feet, and, and then... it's about you know. 12 inches in diameter. Okay, so you don't physically go down that hole. No, no, no. But we were able to see some of the things that were coming up. Wow. But in other areas, then they would have to expose, you know, more of the surface or dig a trench. Um, or if they hit an obstruction, sometimes they would dig to try and expose what it was and then... Be- so it's interesting. So the archaeology that you do a lot of time is opportunistic. You're not... Um, looking to understand everything below the surface. It's just where the opportunities exist. Like if you're digging a big 12-inch tunnel... That's 100 feet deep. That's the opportunity to sort of test. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So as they were working in the area that's sort of the parking turnaround area now, they exposed some granite um, blocks. And um, they were huge. They were, um, you know, the size of this table. So what is that? Like three by one and a half. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we were continuing to expose them, they, they started to like be in an alignment. And it turned out it was the remains of a building foundation. There was so much um, change happening after the Great Fire in 1899 that, I'm sorry, 1889, that the maps for this area were changing almost annually. And so there were a lot of uh, historic maps that sh- for fire insurance purposes huh. that are really valuable to us today. But, you know, some neighborhoods, they might they might not be updated very frequently. But in the Pioneer Square area, they are updated, like, very frequently. And this is in the 19th century? Um, yeah, I mean, about? well, so the fire happens in 1889, and then there's, like, you know, these fire insurance maps go up to 1950s. Got it. Huh. Um, and so um, we find these rough cut granite blocks. We start looking to see well, what what was here, and it turns out it was the um, Hammond Packing Company, which was a pork processor that was there for about fifteen years, mm-hmm. and then later moved to a more permanent facility. Um, but the types of artifacts we found, interestingly, you would think we would find pork. But we didn't because they did such a good job of cleaning everything up because of the sanitation concerns. So, um, but we did find like uh, a shoe that had cleats on it. So it would probably have been kind of a slippery place to work. Hmm. So anyone that worked there processing the hogs was probably like needing to have a little bit extra traction to not to slip. Um, 
And we found things like um, a perfume bottle from Detroit. So that shows like, you know, people were coming here from other places. But we also found things like a Pacific and Puget Sound soda bottle. So that was a local company that was in business here for a long time. And, you know, so those are all things that we can look at and and find the date of based on how, you know, the bottles change through time or the the logo changed through time, things like that. So for this, you're going down 100 feet. Um, at what point does there cease to be an archaeological record, you know, below sea level, you know? Oh, sure. So that's a good question. And I don't mean to imply that the um, Hammond pork processing was 100 feet uh, right. below surface. But, so when we hit glacial levels of glacial, that's when the last ice age was. And we typically would not find any evidence unless somebody came and dug a hole into that uh, right. um, material after um, the area was inhabited. So that's 12,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, good. shifting focus a little bit, I just wanted to look at how we value archaeology, kind of the work that you do. Um, in our conversation earlier today, it sounded like there's not a lot of evidence that historically when this, these regrades and all these changes were made that the, our predecessors really valued the archaeological record anywhere near what, what we do today. And so why is it that it's important in terms of a society? I know there's regulation, but you know why is it important today to keep a record of all these things? It sounds like nothing... Well, I think there were people that in before there were laws that were interested and were self-taught um, and were exploring. Certainly, you know, the the Burke Museum at the University of Washington has some collections from the er early archaeologists. Um, what we have today is more science-based. I think we have more people involved, so we're getting more viewpoints. Mm -hmm. It's not just um, wealthy white men that maybe are doing this as a hobby or highly educated white men who are doing this because they have funding from some benefactor. Mm -hmm. um, and so that changes how the story gets told. Um, and so I guess I think this is important because we can tell stories about people who maybe didn't have a chance to tell the story themselves. And it's not going to be the complete story, mm -hmm. but it helps us understand how people have lived here before and how they're similar and how they're different. Can you give an example of a story that kind of got told as a result of your work that maybe otherwise wouldn't have been told and what it reveals about our past and our current time? Sure. So a project that... Um, we conducted at uh, Smith Cove in Magnolia um, was during a, another wastewater project. Um, and what we found was a community that had lived on the Thailands from about 1911 to 1942. And there was a, a road that extended out into the Thailands on piers. And adjacent to the road, there were some businesses, there were some garages where people could park their cars. And then sort of this unauthorized uh, houses, some on, uh, some on stilts, some um, just on the tide flats, some houseboats. Um, and it was people that basically, you know, low-income people that were trying to make a start for themselves in Seattle. Mm. Um, and so we saw evidence of a Norwegian and 
Finnish people, Native Americans, even though Native Americans were not supposed to be living within city limits by that point. And this area was included in the census, in the 1920 census up through the 1940 census. So there's three years showing us who lived there year after year. Mm. Again, here's a place where we see evidence of children. And because this was a little bit um, later into the 20th century, there's photo evidence and newspaper articles that kind of talk about what has occurred in this part of the city. Um, And... It's also during Prohibition, so we see evidence of alcohol consumption. Um, I think that's really interesting, too. Like, you know, everybody was to understand that there was to be no drinking, but people found ways around that. Mm -hmm. And so I think um, it's just – it shows some similarities to some of the issues that we see in Seattle today um, where – Nearby homeowners are very vocal about people who are scrapping by mm-hmm. and where we see people just trying to make the best of a hard situation, mm. um, including, you know, having children there. Mm. And, you know, we found um, some toys and we um, we saw some photos that showed specific Finnish, children, Finnish heritage children that were, you know, going off to school for the day. Wow. Okay, and you mentioned that that Native people were not allowed to live within the city limits. So, what, what's the history of that law? And well, it was just city ordinance, wow. um, and so you know, um, there were there were places where they were allowed to camp, but they were very limited, and I think people found ways to skirt it. Um, but that was that was the actual um, regulation in place. Wow. So your specialty is curation. Um, so obviously you're not just concerned with like checking regulatory boxes and finding things, but um, but also kind of how these objects and artifacts get displayed and consumed, I guess, by people today. Yeah, and also um, how to preserve them so that they'll be available for the future. And that means not just preserving the objects, but preserving the information that is connected to them. The context. Exactly. Yeah. So how is that done? Because it's complex, right? You're, an object is easy. You can put it in a box and probably clean it up and make sure that it doesn't dissolve. But the context is kind of intangible. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, some objects will be impacted by changes in humidity. Um, and so preserving them is different than preserving a, a stone object, for example. A basketry object is going to need different conditions. Um, and so... We always want to use materials that are um, inert and neutral um, so that they won't inadvertently harm the object as it's being stored. We also want to take really good notes on what processes we've used on different objects because, for example, if um, anyone wanted to do residue analysis on a stone tool to maybe see if there was any blood residue or plant residues on it, like understanding how it had been cleaned could be critical to what technique could be Makes sense. used. Yeah. What's an example of a super fragile object that was really hard to to preserve? I think um, a, a lot of bone objects are challenging because um, they, they just are impacted by the acidic soils that we have here and 
you know, I mean, it's part of the natural process of bone is that it will eventually disintegrate. Mm -hmm. um, and we're trying to hold that off as long as we can. When these objects come out of the ground, who owns them? Um, in Washington State, the landowner. And um, if there's a federal nexus, the, there's a parallel regulation that says that the objects need to go to a museum that will provide research access to them. Does the um, landowner still retain ownership even though the physical possession of them goes to a museum or does, do they um, no longer have ownership? It depends. Some will transfer the ownership. The federal government will retain ownership and just have long-term agreements with the repository to provide care for those objects. Got it. And then again, as we mentioned, tribes have an interest in a lot of artifacts that are, you know, tribal. Uh, and so how does that, how does ownership possession relate to sort of the tribal interests in these objects? Sure. Well, um, many of the tribes in the region have or are planning to have repositories. And so they will be providing care for objects that represent their ancestors. Um, and so that's a really powerful um, way to continue to um, provide access and make sure it's culturally appropriate. And what's an example of a tribe that has sort of implemented, a, you know, stronger emphasis on having a repository? Well, in, um, one, in of the the one of the first is the Macaw tribe, um, and they have all the um, artifacts from the, the Niyabe, the Ozet site, um, which was, a, I believe, 700-year-old site. I, I'm, I may be wrong on that. Um, but that was exposed during a big storm in the winter uh, in the 70s, and it was a village site. Um, and so they were very early in the state to create their own repository. Um, the Colville tribe is another in um, out by Grand Coulee. Uh, they also were an early tribe to have their own repository and have really set the bar for what uh, what a tribe can can provide. Mm -hmm. uh, locally, the Suquamish tribe has a facility and the Muckleshoot tribe has a facility in the um, Tulalip tribe. So those are all facilities where um, research access goes through what um, each tribe and, you know, at any museum, a researcher needs to explain what it is that they want to study and what the value of what they propose to do, especially if there would be any kind of sampling or destructive um, testing that sure. would be done. Okay. So. so a lot of the jobs go into repositories or into vaults, into storage and so forth. But if, um, and I would imagine they sort of emerge when there's a specific interest or a museum wants to feature. Is that right? Well, it is. But an interesting thing is that um, many of the samples that archaeologists collect they don't have any real value. No for, economic value or, well, or, or value even historical. For, no, they have excellent scientific value, but they are not going to be the kind of thing that you go to the museum and say, wow, look at that bag of dirt. Right, um, right. And so um, there's also, you know, huge volumes of broken shell and broken animal bone. And those are things that can be sampled and different questions can be asked. Um, and the thing that's exciting that we're doing more now is we're we're asking questions that aren't just about one site. We're asking questions about, oh, well, do we see sea mammal remains in these eight archaeological sites? And what does that tell us about change through time? Because we've already studied these sites pretty well, but we haven't asked questions that help us do like cross-regional comparisons. Got it. So that's kind of the exciting thing that we're doing these days. So sea mammal, what, what can we learn from sea mammals across sites? Well, um, as an example. 
I mean, the fact that sea mammals were being harvested, not just fish, that's it. That's a, an important question to ask. And what, what methods were being used? How old were these sea mammals? That can help us understand seasonality. That can help us understand what type of methods they must have been using. For example, if, if we see very young sea mammals, seals or sea lions, they may have been closer to the shoreline that may have made them easier to catch, mm-hmm. for example. Got it. Okay. Well, one of the topics of our podcast is just the um, kind of addressing change. We're in a time of immense change in Seattle with uh, so much new construction and destruction of existing buildings and, you know, and then th- their loss. I'm just wondering whether from your perspective, looking, you're looking out across thousands of years, um, as well as the intense levels of change that we've had in the last 200 years. Do you, how do you feel about the, um, you know, the, the, the amount of change that we're experiencing now where whole blocks, city blocks are disappearing in a week. Um, do you think that that's something that's like radical and new or from your perspective, is it something that we've always been dealing with um, in the last few hundred years? No, I think that we see that that's been happening through the years. It's it's more today of what what is our responsibility to, you know, document that history before it's gone. Um that's a little bit more of like building oriented and, yeah. you know, we've been talking a lot about what happens beneath those buildings. Right. Do you so. think that we're doing a sufficient job of documenting um, the environment, the built environment that we have um, as it just disappears um, to be replaced buildings? Or, or do you think we could be doing better? I think it's inconsistent. And like we talked about earlier, there it depends what the, what the regulatory nexus is. And a lot of projects just don't trigger it being reviewed. And so... You know, it's 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 inconsistent. And so, and what's lost in the process? Well, I, the, the the impact on me just walking around the city is sort of dizzying. The fact that you know the Showbox Theater, obviously, that's been a big point of debate, right, with the city council, because the Showbox Theater was a place where I, I mean, I would go to punk shows there in the '80s when I was in high school, and so a lot of people have very fun memories historically in their own lifetimes of music concerts. I mean, the the property was recently perched. It's for a mixed-use development. Mm-hmm. And then there was a sort of a public outcry. And the, there's a debate right now within the city council and the civil society at large of whether it should be preserved or not. It's a exa- good example because it doesn't really have any intrinsic value, any architectural value, but there's incredible amount of color and cultural relevance, right? So um, that's yeah. an example where sort of the city, uh, where certain city activists rose up to try to pause that. Um, there must be a reason. Why I, some feel it's valuable. Yeah. You know. And I guess I see maybe the Pike Place Market is even a better example um, because, you know, that's a place that we – it was established in 1907. It's over, it's the longest active, you know, market – public market in the United States, I believe. And um, so that's a place when in the 70s the community rose up and said, no, we value this place and it, and then it became part of the um, Pipe Place Market uh, Development Authority. You know that that was an important way that we helped shape our city and continue to have that great resource in our city. And I think that shows that we can work to preserve places that matter. And mm-hmm. anything else that you'd like to share? I'm so interested in how your perception of the city, of the places as you walk around, the normal places above the ground that we all know, downtown or neighborhoods or whatnot, how you experience moving through these places 
as an archaeologist might be different from, you know, your friends who are not archaeologists, right. you know, what conversations you have or what thoughts you have that might be different than the rest of us. Yeah. You know, we, we talked earlier about how the the environment here, cha- you know, sort of is challenging for archaeology. Like in Arizona, you walk around and you just see it right on the surface. That's that's how unchanged the landscape is there. And so here, I think I'm always thinking about, well, what's gone on here before and what preceded this historic, you know, this, sure, it's an old pier, but what was here before this pier? I, I definitely am always thinking about what what might have happened in a place beforehand. Yeah, it seems like there's layers of definitely. people that have been here before us and they're kind of around, but you help us to make that more tangible, to not just imagine it, but document. Right. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also ask our guests to bring in something physical um, to share with us that they use in their work or that has significance to them. Um, Paula, what did you bring in? I brought in my trowels. Okay. What are trowels? Um, well, this is a, these are masonry trowels. The Marshalltown is what's usually favored by archaeologists. So I have a triangular one and a rectangular one. Marshalltown is a brand? Marshalltown is a brand, yeah. Okay. And so most people mark their you don't really share a trowel. It's kind of rude to ask someone to use their trowel. Interesting. Okay. So, I, you know, I mark it with my initials. Other people will, like, carve the handles or things like that. But And they're, it's rude to ask because they're such, it's such a personal object. It's just extension. kind of, a, you know, one of the rules of our profession, I would say. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I never knew. And just to let you know, um, Polly, there, you had mentioned there's going to be an opportunity locally for um, our listeners to actually view archaeologists in action. And where is that place? Well, the Brook Museum will be reopening uh, in their new building in October. And I'm really excited um, that they will they are creating this space where visitors can see what all the different scientists are doing, including archaeologists. So um, visitors to the Brook would be able to see archaeologists at work. Um, working with these collections, some, many of these that I talked about today are at the Burke Museum, wow. and to see the types of analytical studies that are happening, or even just rehousing these objects into better containers and things like that. Awesome! Yeah, so exciting. It is. Okay. It is. Well, thank you for being our guest. Sure, glad to be here. Join us next time for a conversation with Seattle architects Ray and Mary Johnston. No relation to, <laughs> to Paula Johnson. These are quintessential Pacific Northwest architects whose work includes public buildings like libraries. For example, the Maple Leaf, Capitol Hill, and South Park libraries, all brand spanking new and beautiful to visit. Urban mixed-use projects like the Greenfire Campus in Ballard, the Past Life Up at Snoqualmie Pass, and Bryant Heights in Seattle's North Seattle Bryant neighborhood. Multifamily projects like Fremont Lofts and Boulders and Green Lake and then most famously, Mountain Modern Homes in Washington's Mithau Valley. Thank you for listening to EK On The Go. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and most other places where podcasts can be found. To learn more, visit us at ekreg.com. And if you have any questions or requests, please send me an email, edwardk at ekreg.com. If there's a place that matters to you, we'd love to hear about it. Maybe we'll talk about it on a future episode. As always, thank you for tuning in. Join us next time to hear from others like archaeologist Paula Johnson about places that matter most. Thank you.